Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, well, it's been a few weeks since we've met because last week we had the Thanksgiving service. And so in chapter 5, just a little bit of review, if you guys remember, the whole issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 was the man who was committing incest with his stepmom. And the church was flaunting it. They were arrogantly putting up with it. And Paul says, it's like yeast, bad yeast. It's going to spread throughout the whole church and cause an issue. So when you gather together as a church, you need to exercise church discipline. And we went and cross-referenced Matthew 18 that talked about the steps that Jesus lays out for church discipline. And then ultimately the goal of church discipline is restoration, is repentance. And we looked and said in 2 Corinthians, that man probably repented and the church wasn't bringing him back, and they weren't loving him, and so Paul had to get on him for being going the other extreme. And so now as we get into chapter 6, there's another issue, actually two other issues that, that come up. Now Paul is going to, in a roundabout way, not a roundabout way, he, in chapter 5 he addressed sexual immorality. In chapter 6 he's going to address sexual immorality, but he's going to kind of deal with another issue that's going on in the church. And remember, we said this was Christians behaving badly. This was... Um, a church where there was a lot of problems. And so let's just pick up in chapter 6 and let's look at verses 1 through 8. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brothers go to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. This is part one of, I don't need to do that. <laughs> you can look at your sheet. This I'm like by, by habit over there. Part one is Christians should handle matters of disputes internally using the wisdom of godly leaders under the influence of of the Holy Spirit. Now here's what the issue was with the Corinthians. They were hanging their dirty laundry out for everybody to see. As opposed to dealing with issues internally, they were going into the courts to settle disputes, to have lawsuits. Now if you know anything about Jewish history, in the Jewish culture, they would not dare go into a Gentile court to have things settled. Um, they would either settle it privately among themselves or there was what was called the, um, the synagogue. The synagogue rulers would come together, the elders, and there would be the synagogue court. And if you remember, when Jesus was tried, he went before the synagogue court. And they could try, the Jews in the, Romans, in the Roman area could try court cases all the way up to death penalty. They could not administer the death penalty. That's why Jesus had to be handed over to Pilate. Um, but so the Jews dare did not go outside. And so Paul is carrying on this principle with Christians saying, you guys really should not be going into the Gentile or the public courts to settle disputes. You really need to handle this internally. Now, what does he call them in verse 1? He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He reminds them that they are saints. We have to remember this as we keep going through 1 Corinthians, that they are believers, they're called, they've been set apart by God, they are Christians, but they're Christians behaving badly, as we've said. Now, here's the issue, and, I, and don't ask me how I, what this means, because I don't know, and a lot of commentators don't know, but basically, he says in verse 2 that we're going to judge the world and we're going to judge angels. Don't ask me what that looks like. 
at some point in the future, we as Christians will have the responsibility of, of judging the world and judging angels. So don't ask me what that looks like or how that plays out. I really don't know. There's not a lot of other evidence, but Paul says, basically what Paul's making, he's making an argument here saying, if in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, or whenever the end of the age is, if we're going to judge big things like angels in the world, why can't we handle the little things here and now? Is kind of what his issue was. And one of his issue is this. They weren't finding people full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to settle these disputes. What does he say? He says in verse 2, And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And then then in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? He's basically coming down and saying, In the church, there's there's not a group of elders, there's not a group of leaders, there's not a group of wise people that you can call upon to be mediators, to be judges, to handle these things internally. Do you guys remember what happened with Moses in the wilderness? He had three million complaining people that were following him in the wilderness. And they kept coming to him with their problems. And do you remember his father-in-law Jethro pulls Moses aside and says, Moses, there's a better way. You're going to run yourself ragged. You're going to take on, you're taking on too much. Let me give you a plan. And so we see in Exodus chapter 18, 21 through 22, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. So it's, it's divide and conquer is what was happening. The big things, basically Moses would handle. The little things. And so really what Paul's saying is, There's a principle in God's family that really, if everybody's acting maturely and everybody's acting the way they should, there should be some wise people in the church to handle this. If there's an argument between true Christians over something, they should be able to bring it to a wise group of people in the church to be able to handle this. And so in verse 7, what does Paul say? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. He's basically saying that you've already suffered a spiritual loss here. Just the very fact that you're you're having lawsuits against each other, you're suing each other, it's already defeat, regardless of the outcome. Even if you win against your brother or sister, really, what have you won? So, here's the question we need to ask tonight in relation to this topic. How should we respond as Christians... Christian brothers and sisters, if we've been wronged, like legally wronged, or what we would consider wronged in a way where we're mad enough that we're going to go sue the person. In my former church, that happened. I was a youth pastor, and this family had a basketball court say a basketball court, a driveway with a basketball hoop, had the youth over there to play basketball, just hanging out. You know how kids play. One of the kids fell while playing basketball, broke his ankle. It happens, doesn't it? I mean, I broke my ankle playing basketball at church, at that same church. That other family, the parents of the kid that broke his ankle, sued the parents for negligence, saying that, and wanted them to pay all the medical bills. And so they, this Christian sued another Christian over that. What do you, how do you guys respond to that? It's wrong. Okay. Because that's a situation where stuff happens and you sent your kid over somewhere else. They didn't go out and beat him with a baseball bat to break his ankle. It was an accident. It happened. So, I mean, it shouldn't even have mattered him. Yeah, well, here's the issue. This is a radical statement that Paul makes, and this is something that we as Americans have a hard time hearing. Look at the radical statement that he makes there in verse 7. 
at the end of verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. But listen, he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Now, that's radical. What's Paul saying there? It's better for you to take your losses. It's better for you to suffer. It's better for you even to be defrauded, to be cheated, than to take your brother to law, to, to have a lawsuit. Brent. There's a story down in uh, Pagosa Springs. There's a Southern Baptist church down there. And the leader was um, pastor. He was known around the state. But there was this group of three or four families who were very wealthy, and they were the ones that kind of guided a lot of things in the church. And they said, um, this is our church. This isn't your church. And the majority of the people were still with the pastor, but these few families were making a flurry. And there was a big prayer session, and they said, we will move away. They did it. The four families, they were very wealthy. They got on a plane, and they were going somewhere. I know that pastor. (laughs) So here's the Christian response. Our Christian response is to forgive that person and leave the outcome in the hands of a sovereign God. The Lord will deal with it in his way and his timing. That's hard to to take. Yes, Anne. I have a story. Okay. Yesterday at the middle school, two parents came in. Each had a middle school child, all in the room were believers. And it was all the evidence pointed to one of the children that she'd stolen a, an electronic device from the other one. And yet the child refused to acknowledge that she'd done it. She's, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And everything pointed to this child. And then the parents took the child to another room and they talked a long time. And Kid stuck to her guns. You know, this I didn't take it. Didn't take it. So it was a hundred and fifty-eight dollar device, and so um, the one, the parent of the one who was accused, said um, the the ones who didn't had said it, the ones who had it stolen said, I guess there's nothing we'll be able to do. Um, and they went and talked again, and they came back and they said, listen. Our daughter says she didn't take it, but the preponderance of evidence says that she did. Therefore, we want to pay the $160 for this device. And the other couple again gave the other daughter an opportunity, and the daughter said, no, 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 no. <laughs> and uh, so the couple said, all right, we will we'll accept your offer, your financial offer. And they left. And then that night, the device was found at another church. And it could have only been brought in there by the daughter. I'm the one who said she didn't do it. Uh-huh. So the truth all came out. Wow. But it was such an honor for me to sit in there and watch two Christian parents settle this with calm and That's awesome. and being rational. That's good. And, you know. That's neat. They knew their daughter was lying. Sure. But they couldn't get her to say yeah. that she was lying. Right. And so they were still going to put the money out there. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's a neat. Te- that, that, that's rare. That's a rare. But that's a. That's a neat testimony. And it's neat that you got to be a. Got to be a part of that. That was wonderful. Um, so. Until justice. Until the the truth. Right. Right. <laughs> well, let's look at Matthew 5. Let's listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 39-40. He says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So Jesus kind of reiterates that. And then listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 19-21. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this, to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving examples that you might follow in his steps. Now, here's the principle. The principle is this. 
if at all possible, Christians should seek to handle matters internally as brothers and sisters in Christ with Christian mediators without taking it into the public trial, lawsuit, courts, things like that. Now, the issue is that we live in a world that's litigation happy, in a world that wants their rights, in a world that wants to sue, in a world that thinks everything revolves around them. So here's the other question. Does this mean that we as Christians should never sue or never go to court? You have to say no. Okay, let me give you some examples. Number one, in the book of Acts, Paul uses the Roman judicial system a number of times to plead his case before the governing officials. So Paul used the courts. Okay, he didn't sue, but he used the official court system to get a, to get a hearing. Number two, God has instituted civil governments and judges and courts are ordained by him to help preserve order in society. And so sometimes we may need to go to court to deal with things. For example, in issues of divorce, child custody and protection, and other issues, it's unavoidable for a Christian to be in court. And then here's the last one. This is one that's real personal to us as a church. A Christian institution like a church or a nonprofit should go to court if it has been wronged by a business or another entity. Yes. And I agree with that. Um, isn't what they're saying in First Corinthians, Christians shouldn't be suing Christians. Yes. But in these other cases, yes. it's not necessarily the case. Right. Christ- is that the one? No, this is the, this is the right one. Oh, that is the right one. What are you guys doing? Did that leave it there? Oh, thanks. Let's hide this one. Way over there. I could have died of water poisoning. Those that are listening online have no idea what we're talking about. So, yeah, 1 Corinthians, the principle is Christians should not sue Christians. It doesn't say Christians should not ever go to court and sue entities. Now, Let's just make this very personal. We as a church had to go through a legal proceeding that lasted many years. And we did not choose per se as a church to get involved legally. We were sued by American Drywall. And all the other subcontractors came together and brought suit against us, brought suit against Landmark Construction Services, and brought suit against a member of our church. And so we were embroiled in a lawsuit. It never went to trial. But we struggled hard as a church and hard as an elders that we didn't want to go to trial because it would mean that a brother in Christ, we would be suing a brother in Christ because it was part of the, the, the whole thing. And it got to the point where we were really, really close to going to trial um, until that last mediation came and the judge said, we're going to fi- fix this today. And, and it, you know, we, we settled and all that good stuff. But we really struggled. And I think there were some business meetings where we hashed this out and talked about what, how, do we, how do we handle this. So it's unavoidable for Christians to, be in, to not be involved in legal proceedings and court proceedings. The general principle here, the overall issue is, is that Christians should not sue Christians They should handle things with love, forgiveness, and there really should be wise people. For example, why do we have elders at Emmanuel? Because people grow old. Okay, because people grow old. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Is, Is it helpful? You see a pattern in Moses where Moses got elders to hear cases. Not that the elders, that we're perfect, but God has set us apart as, as hopefully godly men of wisdom that if there is a situation that happens, we would be the natural body in a manual to be able to listen to some of these things. And if we can't figure it out, then we need to bring in, you know. But I think that the general principle here is that Christians should not sue Christians. They should handle internals matters internally if at all possible. Okay? Do you say the same thing about when you say it's been wronged by a business? For instance, if, let's say... It's a Christian, a it's a Christian business? Yeah. Like a nonprofit, yeah. I don't. I think in that case, if the entity is identifiably Christian, 
even though the scripture says brother against brother, I think by, by extrapolation, I guess you'd say, I would say that you should, probably shouldn't sue them if they're a Christian nonprofit business. Okay. Because I can see a lot of situations where sure. it could where they could sue you and you're, right. you're, and you're with a Christian. Right. And, and, and I think, guys, here's the thing that's really, really radical about this. And what Jesus even said is this, rather suffer wrong, rather not be defrauded. Who wants to be defrauded? That means cheated. That means swindled. That means a loss. That means things don't go the way you want them to go. And Paul says it's better for that to happen to you. We don't, that doesn't compute with us because what do we want? We want justice. Does that mean that justice will never be served? No, it just means that you're trusting God to take care of that. And God will do it in his time and in his sovereignty. And it may not even be in this life. It may be in the next life. But God will right the wrongs. Okay? Yes, go ahead and ask him. They, they should, but in the way that our state works with, like, child protective services and things like that, if it's, like, an abuse case or whatever, or, like, if a... Per- Christians, though, that be that's, that's the point. They shouldn't be abusing their point, yeah. Um, that's where it gets real hard because you have two people that claim to be Christians, and let's say the husband claims to be a Christian, but he's beating his wife and beating the kids. But he claims to be a Christian, and then you come in as a church and you try to handle that. Well, you may say, you can excommunicate that guy and say, you're not doing what we're asking you to do, but that doesn't put a legal restraining order on him to keep him from going in. Does that answer your question? It's kind of, st- it's kind of, yeah, ultimately you don't want to ever get to that point because Christians shouldn't be doing those things. But the reality is it happens and it gets very messy, I guess is the word. And maybe they were non-Christians when they got married and someone became a Christian, and then same yeah. thing. Yeah, and Paul addresses that in the next chapter. <laughs> so, Well, let's, let's look at part two. Part two here is the danger of unrepentant habitual sin. And those are key words, unrepentant habitual. And I'm going to explain this, okay? Paul kind of shifts gears here, and he's going to talk about really... A scary verse that says, if you continue in unrepentant habitual sin, you don't go to heaven. So let's, let's read his words. S- chapter 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, I stress that, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, here's my question. Before we look at this list, how easy is it for a person to be self-deluded into thinking they are a Christian but living in unrepentant habitual sin. Have you known anybody like that? That self, what does it mean to be self-deluded? Deceived. They claim to be a Christian. They say they're a Christian, but their lifestyle habitually, ongoingly evidences unrepentance in some major areas. And they're blinded to that. So, question, how does sin deceive us? Does sin deceive? You bet it does. Let's look at Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Because there's a verse that tells us that sin deceives. Now, Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called a day, that none of you may be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives us, and when it deceives us, it hardens us, and when it hardens us, it leads us to fall away. And so sin is very deceptive. That's why Paul here says, do not be deceived. And then he's going to give a list. 
So let's look at the list. And Paul often gives lists in his writings, and usually the very first on the list is the sexually immoral, and that's what he has here. Pornos is what it is. We get our word pornography from it. This pertains to any sexual sin committed by a person who's not married. Okay, This is not adultery. This is premarital sex. This is fornication is the, is the technical term for it. Um, any type of sex with a person that's not your legally bound covenant spouse. Okay? The sexually immoral. Number two, idolaters. This describes those who worship any false god or false religious system. It's not simply just bowing down to images, but includes the world religions, cults, and false teachings. If you are continually in a cult or a false teaching or a world religion that leads you to idolatry, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Idolatry. Okay. Third is adulterers. Now, this is sex acts committed by married people outside of their marriage, whether with another married person or a non-married person, but you're married and you're having sex outside of marriage. Now, the ESV translates the next one, men who practice homosexuality. There are literally two Greek words there, and there may be, a, I think there's a footnote in my ESV. I think if you have the New American Standard, it talks about the effeminate and the homosexual. There are two Greek words. The first Greek word is really translated man coitus. I mean, it's pretty, that's pretty plain. It's literally two men who sleep together in the same bed. It's, it's, it's sexual acts between two men. The other word that Paul uses is the word malakoi, which means soft, which refers to the passive or the effeminate partner who plays really the role of the female in a, in, in a gay marriage, in a gay sexual relationship. So Paul is referring to both... We're, we're adults here, okay? Both the dominant partner and the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. Now, some people argue that what Paul's talking about here is those like older men that take younger boys and commit what's called pederasty, which is men having sex with boys. And that's what Paul's condemning here. They, they'll say Paul's not condemning consensual homosexual sex between two adult males. The problem is, is that that was practiced very heavily in that culture, and there's a Greek word for that, and Paul doesn't use it. He goes to great pains to show that it is clearly consensual sex between two, two males. Okay. Next on the list, thieves. A person who makes their livelihood by stealing. A robber, a stealer. Covetous. A person who constantly is inflamed with greed and desires what others have to the point of obsession where they do ungodly things to get stuff at all costs. Drunkards. Alcoholics who continually get drunk. Revilers. Those who destroy people with their tongues. They are hateful and attacking and wound with words. And then swindlers. Those who steal indirectly, such as extortioners, embezzlers, confidence men, false advertisers, etc., now, there's the list. And Paul says twice, he brackets it. Do not be deceived. If you are these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if you are these things, you don't go to heaven. So here's the question that you're probably all thinking, and I've written it down here. Does this mean that if a person commits this sin, he or she will never become a Christian? No, because then none of us would be Christians. Because I'm sure most of us, on, most of us in this room have at least been guilty of something on that list. Maybe not all of them, but something on that list, we get, a, we get a clue in the Greek grammar. Look at verse 11, and this is where I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek because I think when you study the Greek text, it brings out implications that you don't get in your English translations. Now, you can still get this by reading it in English, but I want to help you understand fuller the meaning by the Greek text. So, verse 11, And such were some of you. Were. Were is what? Past tense, right? Okay. There is a tense in the Greek language called the imperfect tense. And the imperfect tense is basically past tense action that's continual. Not one-time action, but past tense action that's continual. So the way that you could translate this would be, 
These are what defined you as you kept on continually doing them as a lifestyle. Does that make sense? Paul is saying, this is what you were. This is what you always did. You continually did. This marked you as a lifestyle. This is, this is what defined you ongoingly, continually. This is what you used to be. Not just a one-time sin here or there. This defined you. This is what you were. Now, it's very interesting. I've, when I was studying this, I, 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 I caught something I'd never caught before when I was reading this. Paul does not focus on verbs. He focuses on nouns. Now, what's, what, am I, what do I mean by that? Paul doesn't list the acts. He lists the person who does the acts, which is very interesting. Now, both of them are sinful, right? But I think what Paul's saying here subtly is, if you continually do these things in your life habitually, they define who you are. It's not just a one-time slip up. It's not just a one-time I did this. This is, this is who I am at the core of my being. Now, some of these are really hard to deal with because when you talk about alcoholism or you talk about homosexual tendencies or you talk about sexual immorality or, or even some of these other ones, these are habitual sins that if you continue in them, Paul is saying, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But look what Paul says there. And such were some of you, but in the Greek text, that, that but there is very strong. It's Allah, the Greek A-L-L-A, Allah, which means really strong but. And, he, and he's using that to contrast this with the gospel. And what he does is he lists there Three things that happened at a point in time to the Corinthians that transformed them from being unrepentant, habitual sinners who were hell-bound to becoming true believers in Christ. So he says, there's something that happened to you. You were this. This is what you were. This was your lifestyle. This was what you habitually were. But something has happened to you that's changed you, that you're no longer that. And the first thing he says is what? You were washed. Now, this refers to regeneration or being born again or the whole idea of we've been washed, we've been given a new identity. We've been given a new nature. We are a new creation. What does 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Paul's saying that when you become a Christian, those patterns, those habitual sins, they don't define you anymore. You have a new identity. Now, does this mean you never struggle? No. Does it mean that you're, that you're never going to maybe slip back into that? If it were the case, you probably wouldn't be writing this because we'll get to this issue in just a moment. But he's saying, identity-wise, you have gone from being that, that list of things, to being a washed new person. Titus 3, 4 through 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God saved us and put His Holy Spirit in us and washed us and gave us a new identity, made us a new creation. So that's the first thing Paul says. You've been washed. You've been made new. You, are, you have a new identity. You have a new nature. Number two, what does he say? You were sanctified and this means to be set apart and given the power now to be able to walk in obedience i've talked about this many times before let me just write this on the board a lost person a person who's lost can't do two things when it comes to obedience and obeying the truth obeying the gospel obeying the scriptures Number one, he doesn't have the ability. Number two, he doesn't, or he or she does not have the desire. So a lost person, a non-saved person, a non-Christian can't, doesn't have the ability to obey. Why? They're lost. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They they can try bits and pieces to do it, but at the core of their being, they're not a new they're not a new person yet, so they can't do it, and they don't have the desire to do it. They don't have that new, that new heart that gives them the desire to do it. 
So what happens when you become saved, you become a Christian? What does God give you in the gospel and in the Holy Spirit coming and living inside you? He gives you now the ability and the desire to obey. This pen's not working. This marker's not working. So you can, you can now, you can obey and you want to obey. So I can, I can obey and I want to obey. Why? Because I'm a new creation. I've been sanctified and the Holy Spirit's come and lived inside of me. And what's the third thing he says there? You were justified. This refers to our position, our standing, that we're no longer guilty. Our sins have been credited to Christ and His righteousness has been credited to us. And so when God looks down upon us, He sees the righteousness of Christ and He can declare us not guilty. So, that's a pretty strong warning. So, what's the real issue in the Christian life? When, we, when, you, when you mention that list to people in our culture... What do they often say to us? You're being judgmental. You're being bigoted. You're being intolerant. You're not being understanding. Are you literally saying if somebody does that, they're going to hell? I mean, that's the way they would say it. What's the issue? Here's what I would say. Because let's just pick on... Some people really, really pick on the sin of homosexuality. And really elevate that as a really bad sin. But I want to remind people that it's in a list of drunkards, of revilers, and of thieves. And we've got a whole lot more people sleeping around than we probably do having homosexuals that they kind of get a free pass among, I mean, not a free pass, but we don't make as big a deal nowadays about fornication as we do about homosexuality. So the issue is not so much behavior modification. It's repentance. It's repentance. If a person is trapped in this lifestyle and they don't repent, what is Paul saying? Curtains. Curtains, okay. (laughs) They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so when you go to a person that's struggling with these issues, what you want to do is sometimes you can focus on telling them not, like you can deal with the behavior. But what you really need to show them is that the issue is not, the reason you're doing the behavior is because of your sin. And you need to repent of your sin and come to Christ and then God will, because oftentimes we go and we try to, we try to evangelize people by telling them to change their behavior. And as a lost person, can they do that? Now, it doesn't mean we lower the standards and say you, you shouldn't, you know, it's okay to do this. But what we really should be aiming for is gospel transformation through repentance. And you need to tell them, your struggle may be homosexuality. My struggle is X. The only reason that I'm a Christian today is because by God's grace, He's given me the grace to repent. And I've repented and I found Jesus. Would you please repent as well? My sins, your sin's no worse than mine. Mine's no worse than you. We're all sinners and we all need to repent. And I need to keep on repenting. Does that make sense? That way you don't come across as judgmental and you don't pick on people. And you have to realize that there's a list. I mean, when was the last time that we really picked on revilers? Gossips that tear people up with their words. Did we ever go to them and say, you know, you're hellbound? You gotta watch that tongue. If you have a, if your lifestyle is one of tearing up people with your tongue, you're you're not gonna inherit the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it's easy to pick on adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, drunks, but I mean, idolaters. I mean, different things. But the beauty of the gospel is what? That's what some of you were. Now, evidently, Corinth had those people in their church. And let's keep going, because. The, the last part of this, he's going to talk about the devastating effects of sexual sin. Now, before we read this, I want to um, kind of give you a little background about Corinth. Evidently, the Corinthians had adopted this carefree attitude that they pretty much could do whatever they wanted to because they were forgiven in Christ. I've got freedom in Christ. God's forgiven me. I've got my free ticket to heaven. I like sinning. God likes forgiving. It's a wonderful arrangement. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Now, remember what I told you the very first session that we we talked about Corinth. What was located behind the city of Corinth? 2,000 feet above sea level was this huge rock 
called the Acrocorinth, and it had the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And listen to what the geographer Strabo wrote around 20 AD about the temple of Aphrodite. He said this, The temple of Aphrodite was once so rich that it acquired more than a thousand prostitutes donated by both men and women to the service of the goddess. And because of them, the city used to be jam-packed and became wealthy. The ship captains would spend fortunes there. And so the proverb says, the voyage to Corinth isn't just for any man. So 2,000 male and female prostitutes running around the town of Corinth. And Corinth was known for being a place of sexual idolatry. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. The sexual immorality was so infamous in Corinth that in the entire Greek world, when you wanted to say that a person was immoral or sexually promiscuous, you would say that they were playing the Corinthian. Okay? And evidently, there were two slogans used by the Corinthians that were popular in their city that Paul used to get their attention. What were those two slogans? All things are lawful for me. And... Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. Now, let's read this and see how this plays out. Paul's quoting the slogan in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What I want us to do here is to see four devastating effects of sexual sin that Paul's going to address in verses 12 through 20. First of all, sexual sin brings hurtful consequences. Hurtful consequences. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. They're quoting this, all things are lawful for me. I can pretty much do whatever I want. I'm free in Christ. I've been forgiven. But Paul says not all things are helpful. What's the opposite of helpful? Hurtful. Sexual sin brings hurtful consequences. What I want us to do is keep your finger in 1 Corinthians, but turn over to Proverbs chapter 5. The book of Proverbs kind of gives us graphic imagery of this father looking out and seeing his son being lured in by a prostitute. And, and, and when Paul here uses a prostitute, that's not the only sexual sin you can have. He's talking about any sexual immorality. He's just listed those. Sexual immorality homosexual sin, adultery. But let's look at Proverbs chapter 5. Look at verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman. Now, does some of yours say foreign woman? Or seductive woman? Or adulterous woman? Yeah. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Oh, now, O oh son, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not even go near the door of her house, lest you give your honors to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner." And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline in my heart, despised reproof. He keeps on going all through chapter 5 and really in chapter 6 and 7 and talks about 
the devastating, hurtful consequences of the seductive woman. He said it really leads to death. Her path, basically, if you can translate it, her path leads straight to hell. So if you want to go to hell, you want to go to destruction, you want to go to agony, you want painful consequences, go to her house and spend time there. Uh, go over to Proverbs chapter 9, all through chapter 7. Chapter 7 is interesting because he kind of plays out what he sees a young man doing at night seeking this prostitute. But in chapter 9, look at verses 17 and 18. says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in a secret place is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Basically, he's saying, it's going to be real fun. Sexual sin is going to be real fun, and it's going to be real sweet, and it's going to be real exciting, but it brings death. It brings destruction. Fifteen minutes of joy may lead to a lifetime of pain. And so what Paul's saying there, let's just go back to 1 Corinthians. He says, you guys are saying everything's lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. It's actually hurtful. Sexual sin is going to bring hurtful consequences. Now, here's the second thing. Sexual sin brings habitual bondage. Notice the second thing he says. All things are, this is back in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. I'm not going to be enslaved by sexual sin. Sexual sin dominates. It brings bondage. It may start with a small indiscretion, but in the end, it leads to greater and greater sin that captures you and makes it very difficult to escape. Sexual sin is enslaving. You talk to people, you counsel people that are involved in sexual sin, and the thing they say over and over again is, I just can't stop. I can't get out of it. It's too overpowering. I know it's wrong. I know it's sinful, but I can't stop. I'm enslaved. Listen to what Romans 6, 12-15 says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are under, not under law but under grace? By no means. So number one, sexual sin brings hurtful consequences. Number two, sexual sin brings habitual Bondage. But here's the third one, and this is kind of alliteration here just to help you remember. Sexual sin brings harmful blindness. Now, what do I mean by that? Verse 13, Paul says, Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach meant for the food. Basically, Paul's arguing against the popular idea, and you, and you hear this today, that we are just merely biological animals with cravings and appetites that need to be fed. We're not spiritual, we're not eternal, we're temporal, and we just need to give our body sex because it's an appetite like food and water. It's an animal instinct. After all, we're just like the animals. you got to have sex to live, and so I'm going to get it any way I can. And that's blindness because what it does is it basically says we're not eternal, we're not spiritual, we're not to glorify God with our bodies, we're just biological goo that needs to be satisfied. Do you guys hear that out in culture? I mean, you hear that a lot. People are saying, you know, we're just like the animals. We just, we just have appetites. In Greek philosophy in Corinth, there was this philosophy called Epicurean Gnosticism. Now, I don't need you to remember Epicurean Gnosticism, but it basically means this. In Gnosticism, matter, your body, was evil. And what really mattered was what happened out in the ether in the spirit world, Okay. So you could have really deep thoughts out there in the spirit world and pretty much do whatever you want to do with your body because after all, your body's going to die one day. So Epicurean Gnosticism says, okay, if matter's evil and all that matters is really what's out there in the, in the, in, you know, the ether of the spiritual world, I can do whatever I want with my body because it really doesn't matter. So I can sleep with as many people as I want to. I can get as drunk as I want to because after all, if I, what really matters is the spiritual out there. That's Gnosticism. That is not Christianity. 
Christianity never separates what you do in your body from what you do in your soul. It's integrated. We're, we're bodily people. And so they had this idea that it's kind of this whole idea even in that culture, you know, you're just kind of an animal instinct. Do what you feel you need to do to, to feed that appetite because after all, it's just your body and it's no big deal. And in verse 14, Paul reminds them that they're not just biological animals. What does he say? God raised the Lord and he'll also raise us up. He's saying, we are going to have a resurrected body like Jesus. And so our bodies are ultimately meant to be resurrected in the new heavens and the new earth to be glorified. God created Adam and Eve with the body, not spirits. We are going to have a body in the new heavens and the new earth. And so ultimately, it's a very spiritual thing. It's a very eternal thing. It's not just biology. Okay, number four, sexual sin brings hollow intimacy. Regardless of who you have sex with, there's intimacy. You can't help it. Because what are you doing? You're uniting in one flesh to a person in a very intimate way. Whether it's a prostitute, whether it's sex before marriage, whether it's homosexual, you are experiencing intimacy. But it's a hollow intimacy. And when Paul says, when you join yourself to a prostitute, he's using a Greek word there that means to stick like glue. Reminding of that whole one flesh terminology. What did God say in Genesis 2.24? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They, they shall hold flat, fast. Sex, God is not against sex, but he designed it to be within the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. So there could be that intimacy. There could be that one flesh. And so what, what Paul says here, which is even kind of scary, in fact, he says, if you're a Christian and you commit sexual immorality or homosexual acts or adultery, you're bringing Christ into the situation because you're united with Christ. And if you're united with Christ and you're uniting yourself to somebody else that's not your legal spouse, you're bringing Christ into the sin. Notice what he says there in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Meaning, just as you're joined to the Lord and you're one spirit with the Lord, if you go join yourself and send to somebody else, when you join yourself to somebody else, Jesus in you is part of that. And so you're bringing Jesus into the bedroom, whether you know it or not. Okay? So how do we fight the devastating effects of sexual sin? Paul gives two commands here. In verse 18, he says, flee. And at the end of verse 20, he says, glorify. Flee and glorify. Let's first talk at... Look at flee. Let me give you a little bit more Greek here this, this evening. It's in present tense. It's in the imperative mood. Okay? What does present tense mean? Ongoing. What does imperative mean? It's a command. So when he says flee, it's a command, and it could be translated, keep on continually as a lifestyle fleeing. It's not just a one-time flee. It's a, this is something that you're going to have to constantly be doing. You're going to be fleeing. Now, what does fleeing mean? Running from it. Not even getting close to it. Getting the heck out of there. Okay? Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. For this is the will of God. Now, very few passages of Scripture are that explicit where they'll say, this is God's will. A lot of people say, I want to know God's will for my life. Here's one passage that says, this is God's will. Well, what is it? This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, what I want us to do is turn to Genesis chapter 39. Okay? You're going to get Genesis on a Wednesday night. Not on a Sunday morning. We'll probably get to this maybe next summer. <laughs> I don't know at the rate we're going. <laughs> Genesis 39. This is probably a familiar story. This is, this is uh, Potiphar's wife, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Um, so let's, let's look at the story. It's, it's an interesting story. 
of what happens to a man who remains pure and he suffers for his purity. But you learn a lot from Joseph about, about how to flee. So let's look at Genesis um, 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, his house, his field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Okay, the captain of the guard, number one bodyguard, general, top dog in the, the Pharaoh's court there. So, so Potiphar's probably what? He's probably a pretty hefty, strong man. And God is with Joseph and God blesses Joseph. And so Potiphar says, you know what? This is a guy that I want to be in charge of my house. I travel a lot. I go to the court a lot. He's a trustworthy man. I'm going to make him in charge of my household. So he can be in charge of the servants. He can be in charge of the affairs. Um, he can be in charge of all these things because I trust Joseph. So obviously the captain of the guard has gone a lot but leaves Joseph in charge. Okay, this is like a soap opera because Potiphar has a wife who hangs around and she's not a very godly woman. As a matter of fact, she's a seductive type woman who's probably, you know, had some shenanigans with the pool boy a lot of times when her husband was gone, if you know what I mean, type thing. Okay, so look at, let's look at, let's keep reading. I don't know where that came from, in verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now, the scriptures very, I mean, it's very few scriptures actually talk about a person's appearance, but it's making a very, it's make, it's, he's a stud. Okay, he was handsome in form and appearance. You know, he probably had the washboard abs and this, you know, the piercing eyes. He was a good Jewish young man that was just handsome. Okay, verse 7, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, you don't get this from, the, from your English translations, but this is a very crude way of her coming up and saying and almost demanding, let's go have sex. It's not subtle. It's not, you know, ladylike. It's very um, blunt and out there, okay? So he just, she just goes up to him and says, lie with me, or, you know, the vernacular, let's go, let's go to the sack. Let's, let's go have sex right now. Verse 8, but he refused... And said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now this is pretty powerful, because what does he do? He doesn't just like get away from her, but he goes and tells her the reason. I've been trusted by your husband. He trusts me. And if I were to do this, number one, it's a wicked thing. And number two, I'd be sinning against God. So he's a man of principle. He's a man of integrity. He says to her flat out, this goes against my Christian principles and I'm not going to do it because I would be sinning against God. And then verse 10, she spoke to Joseph day after day. I mean, he can't get out of there. He's a servant. I mean, he's still a servant, so he can't like just pack up and leave. And he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. Now, let's just stop there. The text doesn't tell you, but why would all the servants be gone? Unless she pulled some strings to arrange it to get all of them out there so that it would be an opportune moment for her to seduce him with no one else around and to make her, her move. She's the wife. She can do whatever she wants. So if she says, servants, get out of here, they're going to go. Verse 12, she caught him by the garment. Okay, so she's not just talking to him. She's like physically got him. Like I can just picture him being pinned up against the wall where she's, you know, she's making the move on him. 
Okay? But he left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house. I always picture this like Scooby-Doo, you know, like one of those Scooby-Doo moments where like they're running, they're running, and like the ghost goes to grab it. And like, like, it's like in my mind I have him just like hightailing it out of there. Doesn't, doesn't debate with her, doesn't talk to her. He, he, the garment's still there. I mean, he's, he's out of there. Now, this is what happens when he's pure and he does the right thing. Verse 13. As soon as she saw that he left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant who you brought among us came in to, to laugh at me, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Okay, she's got evidence, right? I mean, he, Joseph was trying to get out as fast as he can, and he leaves the evidence, his, his garment. And so what does she do? She makes up a story. He seduced me. He tried to rape me. He tried to, to make a move on me. And as soon as I yelled, you know, he left, left the garment and got out of here as fast as he could so he wouldn't get caught. Then her husband comes home, and her husband trusts this man, Joseph. Look at verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Joseph suffered for doing the right thing by being put in prison, falsely accused. And so don't think that just because you do the right thing, there's not going to be consequences. There's consequences for doing the right thing at times. But what's the, what's, the, what's the refrain that you see over and over again in chapter 39? I mean, it's repeated purposely. Moses, in writing Genesis, purposely repeats this. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. So it shows me that Joseph had this close relationship with the Lord, this fellowship with the Lord, this walk with the Lord, this integrity with the Lord, that when these temptations came, he was so walking with the Lord that he was able to flee because of his relationship with the Lord. So we flee like Joseph did. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. The other thing that we do is we're to glorify God with our body. Not just your mind, but how you actually live it out. And Paul here says something about sexual sin. He says sexual sin is different than all other sins. Not necessarily worse, but it's different because of its nature. He says, Every other sin a man commits is outside his body. The one who sins sexually sins against his own body. Meaning that if you go steal something, you've taken an inanimate object. Now, you've stolen against a person, you've taken an inanimate object. If you've lied, you've said a lie against a person. If you're greedy, you're greedy against a person. If you murder someone, you've actually taken a life. That's a pretty heavy crime. But he says when you sin sexually, what have you done? You've united yourself intimately, physically, emotionally with that person in a very deeply spiritual, intimate way, whether it's your spouse or not. And so it's a sin like no other. Now, what are the motivations or reasons why we can flee sexual sin and glorify God? Paul gives three. Okay? He gives three motivations or reasons why we can do this. Okay? How can we flee and how can we glorify? Number one, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What does he say there? He says, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? In other words, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Think how shocking it would be to go into our sanctuary and commit a sexual act of impurity in the sanctuary, even if nobody's around. Paul says that happens every time you have sex with a person that's not your spouse because you are the sanctuary. 
You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And wherever you go, the Holy Spirit goes. And so Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So the number one, one of the first reasons why or how we can say no to sin, how we can flee, is because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And number one, He gives us the power to flee. But number two, it's a, a reminder that He, he takes up resonance. Our, our body, who we are, is the literal dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. And when we think that way, we realize, remember that old song, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary? That's like an old praise song. But it's a good praise song because it talks about how our bodies, our lives are to be a sanctuary. Pure and holy, tried and true. How's it go? Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. I mean, that's a pretty good little praise song. Um, and it reminds us here of this. All right, number two. We are not independently free people, but we are dependent and belong to God. As Christians, we do not have the right to do whatever we want. What does Paul say there at the end of verse 19? You are not your own. Big newsflash for Christians, especially Christian teenagers and young people. It's my body. I can do whatever I want. I'm independent. Nobody can tell me how to live my life. I'm my own person. If you're a Christian, can you say that? You're not your own. The moment that you trusted Christ for salvation, you died to yourself, you took up your cross, and you became a slave of Jesus under His Lordship. Whether you liked it or not, that's what you did when you became a Christian. So you're not your own. You now belong to to Christ. But here's the third one. This is ultimate. Finally, we're bought with the precious blood of Christ. Look at verse 20. For you were bought with a price. The, the number one reason why we should be sexually pure is because Jesus paid for that sin and bought us at a price. And what was the price? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 18-19, knowing that you were ransomed. Ransom is just another word for being bought. You were ransomed. You were bought from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So ultimately, again, Paul brings everything around to what? The cross. And the theme of 1 Corinthians is, is the cross. Everything's centered on the cross. Why do we not sin sexually? The cross. Why do we not sue our brothers? The cross. Why is... Incest in the church, not healthy and needs to be disciplined because of the cross. 